Fresh manna fell to the ground as a gift from God while the Israelites were in the wilderness. This is what they ate for 40 years. It was fresh from the ovens of heaven, baked by the master baker himself. How the Israelites must have anticipated the taste and the smell of each morning's delivery. Just like the Israelites, you too can now experience the taste and the smell of fresh manna. Today you'll be listening to Stephen Conway, pastor of the Troy Seventh-day Adventist Church. And now here's Pastor Stephen. Let's bow our heads together one more time as we get into our message for today. Loving Father, we are thankful for the great privilege that is ours to be in your presence. We ask that you would feed us and speak to our hearts, challenge us, and ultimately lift us up to where you would have us to walk. We thank you in advance for hearing and answering this humble request, for we ask it in the name of Jesus. Let all of God's people say, Amen. Amen. The title of our message today is An Unexpected Turn. An Unexpected Turn. I want to start by reading something to you that you may find interesting, but I want you to stay with me because we are going to go somewhere with this, and you will, by the grace of God, you'll have a clearer understanding. In the hands of an experienced physician, a scalpel is a marvelous tool. It can remove a deadly tumor or repair a diseased heart. The success of such procedures, of course, depend upon the skill of the surgeon because that same scalpel in the inexperienced or careless hands can fatally nick a healthy artery, sever an unseen nerve, or even perform an operation on the left knee when the right one is the problem. A cooperating criminal. A what, beloved? A cooperating criminal used as a witness against other criminals is much like a scalpel. Jimmy, the weasel, Fradiano can be used to bring down the West Coast Mafia. Sammy the Bull, Gravano, to unseat mob boss John Gotti. And Michael Fortier to deliver a crushing testimonial blow to Timothy McVeigh in the Oklahoma Federal Building bombing case. In point of fact, one of the most useful, important, and indeed indispensable weapons in civilization's constant struggle against criminals, outlaws, and terrorists is information that comes from their associates. But as in the case of a scalpel, The careless, unskilled, or unprepared use of cooperating criminals as a witness or witnesses has the capacity to backfire so severely that an otherwise solid case becomes irreparably damaged. By definition, informer witnesses are not only outlaws, but turncoats. They are double-crossers and 
a prosecutor not attuned to these unpleasant truths treads without cleats on slippery ice. In a moment, a prosecutor can effectively go from prosecutor to the object of an investigation with chilling consequences. Moreover, an informer, apparently fully on board, can commit perjury, obstruct justice, manufacture false evidence, and recruit other witnesses to corroborate their false stories. I want you to hear this. As the Supreme Court said in Castigar versus the United States in 1972, our immunity statutes reflect the importance of testimony and the fact that many offenses are of such a character that the only persons capable of giving useful testimony are those implicated in the crime. I just read to you an excerpt, skipping over some, from an article from the ACLU. It was a lecture that was given on the use of criminals as witnesses and how it presents a special problem. Let me repeat that again. Many offenses are of such a character that the only persons capable of giving useful testimony are those implicated in the crime. This is why I'm thankful for heaven. Because it's disturbing to live in a justice system that says we will grant immunity to the individuals who helped to plan and even execute the crimes just so we can catch their accomplices. But I would submit to you that this probably touches home closer than many of us would have ever imagined. Open your Bibles with me to the eighth chapter of John's Gospel. John chapter 8, I'll begin reading. Verse 1, John chapter 8, verse 1. Jesus went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, we're in verse 4, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses, in the law, commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground, and they which heard it 
being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the elder, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone. And the woman standing in the midst, when Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. Jesus is in the Jerusalem temple. Jesus is teaching and Jesus is preaching and perhaps he's healing as well when an ordinary day in the temple, and let me just make this clear, whenever Jesus shows up, it's never an ordinary day. But the general or the normative proceedings took an unexpected turn when a group of church leaders brought in a woman who was taken in the very act of adultery. It was, I think, the year 2000. Unexpected turns can be dangerous. It was the year 2000. I had just come from Regions Bank down in Dayton, Tennessee. I was working at a self-supporting institution, a boarding academy, and I had made a deposit. See, when you work in these places, you don't make a lot of money. So I had made a deposit into my savings account. In a few months, I was going to be married. And my savings account was almost at $2,000. I wish I could explain to you how long it took me to save this amount of money. But on the way back up the mountain, see where I work was on the mountain, and I'm driving on my way back up the mountain. And as I'm driving, I am imagining, I'm imagining where this $2,000 is going to land my new bride and I. The $2,000 is for our honeymoon. So you can imagine I'm thinking tropical. No, 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 maybe not tropical. Maybe the mountains. And all of these things are running through my mind. Now in the mountains in Tennessee, the roadways are curvy. But I've driven these roadways in the dead of night, early in the morning, over and over again. I know them almost like the back of my hand. But because of the depth of my daydreaming, a turn that is routine and ordinary that I've taken over and over again, it comes with a rush and it's unexpected. And my 1987 Honda Accord, it drifts across the center line. Now, praise be to the Almighty that on the other side was a co-worker of mine, Camelia. She was driving in a little red Hyundai. And as I awakened out of my daydream about my honeymoon, I yanked the car back just so that the fender and the doors of our cars touched each other. Pulled over to the side of the road and there went my $2,000. The Lord has been gracious though. It is because of this that I believe we need to investigate this unexpected turn that takes place in 
the temple in Jerusalem, lest we misjudge it and in the process misjudge Jesus. Now, we've heard this story, many of us, and we know that Jesus, ultimately, he kneels down in the dust when the woman is brought. And we've been instructed that one of the things that Jesus does when he's kneeling down in the dust is he writes what? Oh, come on, beloved. He writes what? He writes the sins of the individuals. Now, as I'm following along in this narrative, in my mind, I'm ecstatic because a woman who has been caught in the act of sin and has been unceremoniously brought into church and accused in front of everyone. The Bible says they put her in the midst. This didn't take place in one of the Sabbath school rooms or in a room off to the side. They brought her out in front of everyone. And there's something in the heart of every one of us that celebrates Jesus writing the sins of the accusers in the sand. If we've ever been accused of anything, guilty or not, we understand that it is not a happy feeling when our guilt is exposed. And so there is something in us that says, you get them, Jesus. Way to put them in their place. How dare you treat this woman like this? Though she was a sinner, she did not deserve this type of treatment. I would suggest to you by going a step further that all of us can sympathize. All of us can sympathize with the stone throwers or the would-be stone throwers. Now, nobody said amen to that. <laughs> I don't know about you, but I've been tasked before with having very difficult conversations with people that I have relationships with. My closest relationship, of course, humanly speaking, is with my wife. And after spending over 20 years together, I know that I cannot just bring very important things to my wife. So here's what I do, and maybe some of you do this as well. I pray, Lord, give me the wisdom and give me the tongue of the learned. And maybe that's not enough. Maybe I'll say, okay, I need to fast as well because I want to have the conversation at just the right time. I'm praying. I'm fasting. I'm planning. Because ultimately, my desire is to speak the truth in love. Are you with me? And so finally, the time arrives, spirit-led, I would have you know. The time arrives and the conversation is broached. And with careful language, I craft these challenges that have appeared in her life that God has brought to my attention so that I can help her to grow in grace. And as I'm sharing, beloved, without prayer, without hesitation, without fasting, without planning, my wife has, on occasion, quickly pointed out the very same things that I am sharing with her as they exist in my experience. 
Have you ever been there? No, 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 you, 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 you never been there. You don't know what I'm talking about. She didn't even pray, Lord. She didn't fast like I did. She didn't plan, and I don't even know if she spoke it in love. But most of all, here's what's troubling. How in my prayer and in my fasting and in my planning, listen to me, friends, could I miss the existence of what was so obvious in my wife in my own life? You see, you and I can sympathize with those who were there looking at this woman. I don't know what all of their motives were. We're given insight as to some of those motives, but not all of them. But you and I can sympathize with them because in our attempts to share truth with others, listen to me, friends, the Spirit of God has used those relationships and those opportunities to reveal truth about us. Oh, beloved, that's an unexpected turn. I didn't come here for that. In fact, let's take it a step further. Some of us are here today and we are praying for our children. And it's a good thing. We ought to be praying for our children. Some of us, others of us are here today and we're praying for our spouses. And we ought to pray for our spouses. But we didn't necessarily come because we recognize our need. We're here because somebody else needs Jesus. I'm here because I want to approach the throne on behalf of. And all the while, you and I are missing our soul's need of a Savior. The Bible says that each of these individuals were convicted in their conscience. Convicted where, beloved? The Greek word translated conscience means literally, listen to this, friends, a co-perception. Co-perception. In classical Greek, it referred to a capacity to relate to oneself, especially when one looks back at one's own past. This looking back did not stop short with ascertaining facts, but led to evaluations and judgments on one's past. In a Christian concept, let me break that down so that you can hopefully grasp it a little bit better. In a Christian sense, it would be as if the Holy Spirit shows you and I a picture of ourselves. Anyone seen a picture of yourself? No, 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 not just any picture. I'm talking about a picture of yourself that you didn't know existed. Right? Maybe you're at a family member's home or maybe an old friend comes by and they pull up a picture and you've never seen it before. Right? And you look at it and you're like, well, when was this taken? <laughs> I don't even remember it. Right? For some of us, the memories are much more vivid and we remember exactly when the picture was taken. It doesn't matter whether it was 10 years ago, 15, 20 years, or five years ago. One thing becomes obvious as you look at the picture. That's me. 
That's me. Here's what the Spirit of God does. He merges the picture of you and I from our past. And he evaluates the truths of who we are. And he merges it with our current or present picture of ourselves. That's the reason why we're shocked when we look at the picture. Because it's not what you see when you look in the mirror every day. Isn't that right? I wanted to be so bad as a teenager. We're in the process of moving and packing. My wife found some high school yearbooks. We went to the same high school. And I looked at my, at the 17-year-old and 18-year-old version. She has our junior year and our senior year together. And I looked at those versions and I remember, you know, just doing everything I could short of drawing with a pencil a beard on my face. But because that is so different, I hope you're with me, beloved, because that's so different from what I see daily when I look in the mirror, I am almost shocked because of what I see when I look at a picture from my past. And that's how it is spiritually. This is why in this thing called conscience, the spirit reminds us of our brokenness, reminds us of our shortcomings, reminds us that the very things we are passionate about seeing change in the lives of others, we ourselves have, and in many instances, still wrestle with ourselves. Amen. That's what those who brought this woman were convicted of in their conscience. The Spirit of God co-opted, co-opted how they saw themselves. And it changed just like that. It changed, beloved, how they saw her. Now, I want to share something with you. Because as I was preparing for this, a couple of things popped out. Because we missed this, we don't actually engage the real Jesus when we read this passage in John chapter 8. What do I mean? We have a passage of Jesus putting people in their places. But I want to appeal to you today that Jesus was not putting people in their places. I don't believe Jesus wrote anything explicit when he wrote in the dust. As he wouldn't need to write anything explicit if he were to write in the dust concerning you and I. All he need write is a street. A name. A sum of money. A year. A day. And all of those memories that have been cataloged in our minds. Would instantly instantly come to life. The sin of the woman's accusers were not exposed as a means of condemnation, but rather as an invitation to the one who knows all and yet does not condemn. Oh, pastor, I don't, I don't know about that. I don't know if you can be sure about that. I would submit to you 
that I'm certain about it. Because in John chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible says, For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Oh, you ain't heard nothing yet. In John chapter 6, verse 37, Jesus says, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and him that comes to me I will in no wise cast out. Oh, help us, Holy Ghost. Mm, mm, mm. You see, because when we apply these things, these truths about the character of Jesus in this setting in John chapter 8, a marvelous truth begins to emerge. Even when you and I come to God for someone else, God takes advantage of the fact that we have come so that he might reach us. You might be praying for your son or daughter, by the way, more intensely than you ever prayed for yourself. You might be praying for your husband or your wife again more intently than you have ever pressed the throne of God for yourself. And God says, well, since I got you here. Uh, let's talk now. Oh, yeah, Lord, you know, he just don't listen. Well, neither do you. And that's the reason why it took these complexities and these challenges in your life to bring you to this place where you recognize that you needed divine intervention. But this divine intervention is not just so I can straighten out your relationships. It's not just so I can fix your husband or your wife. It's not just so I can fix your children. It's so that I can save you. The one who comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Amen. Beloved, our intentions may not even catch our soul's deep need of Jesus, but at least we've come. And Jesus said, I'm glad you're here. And when we impose this truth on what we read in John chapter 8, the most saddening thing that takes place in the 8th chapter of John's gospel is not the fact that a woman was taken in adultery. <laughs> Woo, help us, Lord. The saddest part of John chapter 8, because here's what Jesus does. He places those who have brought her as her accusers in the same place she was. Exposed. But in her exposure, she remained at the feet of Jesus. Listen to this. Verse 9. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last. Listen to this. And Jesus was left alone. And there was only the woman standing in the midst. Beloved, the saddest part of John chapter 8 is that only one woman received what Jesus came to the temple to give to everyone there. 
for some people, it was all right to come to the temple or the church for their children, for their spouse, for their job. But when Jesus helped them to see that their real need was a personal one, they turned and they walked away. That's the saddest part. The saddest part. I'm getting ready to close. How could Jesus treat someone such as this woman caught in the very act of sin? The reason this is important is because some of you are thinking, but, but you don't know my kids. They're addicts. They're out of control. They're disrespectful. They're hate-filled. You don't know my spouse. You don't know my parents. They're unrepentant. I can't even talk to them about how they've hurt me. You don't know. Somebody might say, well, I know why Jesus could treat the woman like this. Because he's Jesus. Well, yeah, but no. There's one word in scripture that gives us clarity as to how it is that Jesus was able to treat this woman this way. And I think it'll help us. It's the word reconcile. What's that word again? This word reconcile is a fascinating word. It relates in classical Greek. Again, it was used to relate to two individuals between whom hostility existed. And this word was used to speak of the doing away of that hostility. Now, let's do a little Bible quiz. Are you ready? When is the hostility between God and humanity dealt with? Somebody said at the cross. Judgment. Whoo, I got news for you. See, if we take the cross, then it means until the cross, hostility exists between God and us. This is why scripture refers to Jesus as the lamb slain from when, beloved? Ah, there we go. The cross, therefore, is a manifestation of the love of God which existed from eternity for fallen humanity. Amen. And this, beloved, is the reason why the moment there was a sinner, there was a savior. The hostility between God and those who had not even broken his law yet or even been created had already been dealt with in eternity past when God decides to create humanity. 
And so Jesus, listen to this, beloved. Jesus is therefore able to deal with my stuff and your stuff in all of its ugliness and all the hostility is gone. It's how he's able to treat us better than we deserve. It's how he's able to lend a listening ear to people who have lied to him by promising him we'll never do it again. When we have disrespected the name of God, he's able to approach us with compassion because the hostility has been done away with, of course, in the person of Jesus. Now, let me share something else with you. Reconciliation is not just. If you and I experience reconciliation with God, that's not all reconciliation accomplishes. Reconciliation goes a step further because God has dealt with the hostility between he and I. He also deals with the hostility that exists between me and you. Oh, beloved, I want you to grasp it. Now, listen, listen, I know what you're thinking. You're like, but they haven't changed yet. And neither had we. The disappearance of the hostility is not because we've adopted new behaviors. It's because God is a God of love. The hostility disappearing between me and those in my life is not because they've become better people. But it's because I've been transformed. Oh, you didn't hear what I just said. When you and I experience the transforming love of God, it changes how we relate to others. Those who have wronged us, who have disrespected us, who have hurt us. We can now approach them as though no Hostility exists between them and us. You got a son today. You got a daughter today. You got a husband today. You got a wife today. Don't run too far with this old pastor told me. I'm not telling you to do anything. I'm telling you to allow God to remove the hostility. What it means from there is between you and your savior in the area of reconciliation. This is what allowed Jesus to say, neither do I condemn thee. I didn't come to condemn you. I came to embrace you and empower you to go and sin no more. I don't know about you, but I need this in my life because I can see my wife and my children and everybody else's issues more clearly than I can see my own. I know that's only me, not you guys. I need this in my life because I often focus primarily on God and I without accepting that when God and I are right, it means he takes away the hostility that exists 
between others and I. Do you want God to take some hostility? Do you want God to transform you even if those in your life are not transformed? Do you want to say, Lord, I'm not waiting on them. I'm not waiting on them to have permission for me to step into your supernatural experience. If that's your desire, just slip your hand in the air. Lord, I want you to take away some hostility. Lord, I want you to change me. I know you're busy in everyone else's life, but I want you to do something for me. Bow your heads with me and close your eyes. Loving Father and our wonderful God. How heartbroken Jesus must have been because so many who could have had such a profound experience turned and walked away. But oh, how joyous the heart of Christ was that even one said, yes, I'll take what you have for me. Lord, our hearts need you. We're thankful for the encouragement of John chapter 6, verse 37, that says, even if we come blind to our own conditions on behalf of our children, on behalf of our spouses, on behalf of our families, on behalf of our coworkers, on behalf of our brothers and sisters in Christ, on behalf of our neighbors, it does not matter why we come, we come. And you will meet us. And draw us into an unexpected experience which will spill out in the streets of gold. Lord, you've seen the hands that were raised. You know the hearts. We need. We need hostility to be removed. We need to be transformed while waiting on those that we're praying for to be transformed. We need it. I'm thankful, God, that you placed this precious truth in an apocalyptic setting. For in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus' message to the Laodicean church is that our eyes might be anointed with eyes out, that we may be able to see. To see, that is, our soul's deep need of you. Thank you, Father, for hearing and answering our humble prayers. If you agree with and affirm this prayer, demonstrate it by saying, Amen. Amen. May the Lord bless you. You've been listening to Stephen Conway, pastor of the Troy Seventh-day Adventist Church. If you've enjoyed his sermon, why not visit his church or a church near you listed on strongtowerradio.org. The Troy Seventh-day Adventist Church is located at 2775 Crooks Road in Troy, Michigan, and their church service begins at 1045 a.m. This has been a Strong Tower Radio production.